Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in Glasgow, where she started her career in journalism as a football reporter. A fellow colleague said she turned up for work one day and just kept coming back. This driven nature continued throughout her career. Moving to work for the Conservative Party as a press officer, then later selected by Theresa May to be her closest ally in the Home Office. In 2016, when May became Prime Minister, she moved to number 10 as the first female Chief of Staff in Downing Street. She covered all areas of May's political career, from the Modern Slavery Act, Brexit negotiations to the 2017 general election. She resigned after that general election when the Conservatives lost their majority. Now, she runs her own strategic consultancy, specialising in policy, reputation and crisis management. Described by one former colleague... That she's a woman is neither here nor there, she's just a professional. My guest today is Fiona Hill. Fiona, thank you for coming on our podcast today. You have been high on our list of guests. We have been very keen to get on for some time, so very happy to have you here. To begin on on this podcast, we ask everyone, would you describe your childhood as a happy one? Overall, yes. I am exceptionally close to my siblings, My sister Amy is 12 years younger than me, so she keeps me young. And my brother is four years younger, and we're just really, really tight. And also my mother is a force of nature and just very cool, really. So the mixture of that combination was the happy part. There was a few challenges with my father, and they got divorced, so that was the less happy part. But I'd never really think about that too much because... I think every child has a challenge, but overall, pretty happy. And what were you like at school? Were you well-behaved? Were you a force of nature like your mother? What was the vibe? A set of contradictions, Katie. I worked hard-ish sometimes, and I was fairly straight-laced, but I also have quite a mischievous character, and every now and then I might have exercised that. (laughs) <laughs> any any examples? Is this oh, I'm so old now, you see, yeah. Katie, I can't remember. <laughs> but the teachers loved you. I was always the teacher's pet. And was politics discussed much in your family growing up? Yeah, Very much so. I mean, that was the thing that we spoke about at lunch, dinner, you know, it was something that I remember speaking about very, very early on in my life. I remember mum telling me that when I was five I refused to watch John Craven's news round because it was too boring and I wanted to watch the news at nine as it was then Um, and then I told my mother that I would become a journalist and then go into politics so I think I pretty much set my own strategy and stuck to it. (laughs) Um, Let's talk about that career in journalism because I mentioned the introduction you were a football reporter for a while and perhaps Scotland's first female football reporter. I think I might have been there was another girl who came on the scene not long after me but I can't because I don't like pretending I do think I was the first but she definitely came on I can't remember her name now but she worked on one of the other Glasgow newspapers and I wondered first how did you get into football reporting and two what was the what was it like at the time did you have because I think we see lots today about sports reporting and how females particularly in football aren't taken so seriously did you have much of that I think that's fair to say I mean I I saw the funny side of it because it was so preposterous really I mean I I got into it because When I was leaving university, I knew I wanted to be a journalist and I took a job as a receptionist on the Daily Record and Sunday Mail 
because I thought I'd use that as a, a launch pad into the editorial side. So I sent the editor, the then editor, a guy called Malcolm Speed, who was very nice, a copy of my CV with a tea bag stapled to it saying, enjoy over a cuppa. And he seemed to find this quite amusing. Breakfast tea. Actually, it's probably Tetley's. Yeah, I wasn't very sophisticated then, Katie. Obviously, I'm now. <laughs> but yeah, so I, he, he liked that. And so he said, OK, let's give you some work experience on the free sheet, which was called The Glaswegian. And I did my work experience there. And I had a centre page splash after a couple of days and realised actually I, I quite enjoyed this. And they realised I was fairly good at it. And then someone, I, I don't know who, came up with the idea that actually they should make me do football. And so I did football. <laughs> so at what point do you then, you had a brief stint doing PR because my editor, before we recorded this, Fraser Nelson, said that you once tried to help organise his stag do. Um, I'm so, a very, very helpful and resourceful person. <laughs> can turn my hand to anything. <laughs> um, so what was the PR stage of your career like? Did you um, like it all? I'd been working at Sky News as deputy news editor and I was acting up as news editor and I started to look at, well, when do I go into politics? Because obviously I'd had that always in, in my mind. And I then also worked out that it was highly unlikely that I would ever be made you know, head of domestic news because there are just so few of those jobs in broadcasting and the competition is quite stiff and there are very few women. So I thought, well... Okay, maybe it's time to to move. And I went to the Conservative Party conference, the the one where David Cameron and Dee Dee and so forth were doing the leadership campaign. And I saw David speaking in in a warm-up and I just thought, actually, really like this guy. I think this is the time to go into politics. I always knew I was a Conservative. And so I ended up in this PR job because I left Sky because a friend who worked there persuaded me to go there. But it was the worst three months of my life. Um, I was terrible at it, and I just hated it so much. And then I was fortunate enough to have an introduction made with uh, Henry McCrory and Michael Salter, who worked at CCHQ, and the rest is history. Why did you always know you were a Conservative? Were your parents Conservatives? My grandmother very much was, and my mother. For me, I guess... It was a reaction to growing up in a very labour place and I didn't really like their attitude to many things, actually. And also, I really don't want the state interfering in my life and I don't think that the state should be the answer to everything and I felt that when I was younger. And that's, it, it just kind of gradually moved, I guess, from, from there. It was, just, it was an instinctive thing for me, really. So you joined the Conservative Party press office, and this is when the yes. Tories are in opposition. Correct. So what is the mood like? Does it feel as though they're on the cusp of something, or is no one quite sure yet? Well, I joined in January 2000, and whatever January it was after he became yeah. leader, that's when I joined. And, you know, I just had a ball, actually, Katie Pauls, <laughs> because I, I just loved the people that I worked with and, you know, we had so much fun. And I think that we worked really, really well as a team. It was probably a bit early at that stage to think that we were on the cusp of something, but all I know is that the atmosphere was right because we were all fairly young, fairly bright, 
and knew what we wanted to do and how to do it. And, you know, David and George were very, very good at leading in opposition. And, you know, it was just fun, you know. When did you meet Theresa May? I think, actually, I first met Theresa May when I was a journalist at Sky, probably at a party conference. But the first time I got to know her vaguely well was one of the other press officers had a couple of weeks off and I stood in for her and then worked for her for a couple of weeks and I think I got her a front page splash because I made her write to Sir Alan Sugar complaining about something so I think that stuck in her mind and she went to the home office a mixture of her and and obviously Nick and I knew each other in opposition and got on very very well so that's how the uh, the team came together. And did you immediately see in her the type of politician where you had quite similar values? I didn't know her well enough to make that judgment in opposition, really. That took a bit of time being in the Home Office and getting to know her a bit more personally. So we've we've skipped to the point where the Tories are now in power yeah. and obviously you're in the Home Office of Theresa May. And I wonder what what was the transition like from obviously working in the Tories in opposition, explaining all the positives, to suddenly you're in what many regards as the trickiest department. Mm. There's a reason it's often called, you know, the graveyard of ambitions because it's just so large. There are lots of problems. We've seen Home Secretary such as Amber Rudd, you know, struggle with it. So how how does your job change? Is it quite daunting at that point? I mean, it's, it's a kind of vertical learning curve that unless you've experienced it, you can't really understand it. I mean, one of the reasons that I called my uh, consultancy Marsham Street Consultants is because I just loved being there. I mean, I absolutely loved that job. And I loved, because I really do like learning, and I loved the pace at which I had to learn, how much I had to read, how much I had to get under the skin of the department, the, the scale of the, the challenge. always quite like a challenge in everything. And, yeah, I mean, I just felt very, very motivated and really happy that I was learning that much that quickly because you really do go from... A knowledge of very little, really, apart from how journalism works or, you know, how you think about policy, to this big operational department where there's risk everywhere, and there's nothing more intellectually satisfying than than working in a risk environment for me. I, I just completely, you know, get off on it. If that's the right terminology, probably not. Spectator listeners, but yeah, I mean, it's what it's what makes me jump out of bed in the morning. So you're in the Home Office and then you have a brief period out. Yes. Can you tell listeners what happened there? I had become very immersed in the modern slavery agenda and we yeah. just finished the, the legislation. But the legislation I knew only covered off and, and helped one angle of modern slavery and I'd become very, very interested in the security side of it, the organised crime part of it. So that's when I went to the CSJ and researched and wrote a paper looking at organised crime in relation to trafficking across Europe. One of our contributors, James Kirkup, once suggested it's probably fair to say that Mrs May only talks about modern slavery because of Ms Hill. I don't think you'd go that far, but... Well, I mean, there, there was a day that I was speaking about it so much that she asked me to stop. <laughs> but, but, you know, I'm the kind of person that if I see something that I feel passionate about, I do become borderline obsessed. So. Um, just on modern slavery, I wonder, because it's one of the things I think to this day is seen as the legacy of Theresa May. And we'll talk more about the Theresa May premiership, of course. But what was it that then made it something that you were so focused in on? Was it a particular experience? or No, I mean... I defy anyone who sits down and hears the story of someone who's been trafficked and then exploited to not then become quite obsessed with it. 
and to understand really what lies behind it. I've, I've met women and men who have told me stories that I couldn't even tell you on, on your podcast, I'm afraid. But once you hear those stories, you can't unhear them. And just the sheer tragedy. I mean, one woman who had been trafficked from, from Africa, she went through the most horrendous abuse. And she was only 26 when I spoke to her and she'd just been diagnosed with breast cancer that day. And I couldn't believe how unlucky one person could be. And when you know that and you know that you're working in a, an environment that you can do something about it, even if it's a tiny thing, you can't go to bed at night and not. You just can't. And the more I looked into it, the more I realised that this wasn't just a social condition or a social issue, and it wasn't just a migration issue. Really, at its heart, it was organised crime. And organised criminals are so agile and so better at getting things done than governments that I became very passionate and you know, just very serious about how we could get government and its institutions to be a bit clever and understand really what was lying behind it because organised crime is you know, illegal firearms, it's drug crime and yet human trafficking wasn't seen in that bundle but it makes huge amounts of profits for organised criminals, huge. And then from that point it was something where you where you came were pushing to, would you say there was a gap in the law on it? Or? There's a huge gap yeah. and there still is. Still is. And we set up the Modern Slavery Task Force to try and fill that gap and we had the head of MI6, head of MI5, the head of MOD Intelligence because to come down hard on something like organised crime in the same way that you do for counter-terrorism, you really need multidisciplinary teams to be able to do it. And I knew that they weren't doing it and I wanted them to do it. So I thought, well, let's eyeball them and see if we can get them to do it. Now, you have your period outside of government and then in 2016, we're going to skip past the EU referendum because otherwise we're never going to leave this room. <laughs> <laughs> but ultimately, we all know what happens. Leave wins. David Cameron no longer feels able to stay in his place. He steps down. Lots of people think this is going to be a Boris Johnson coronation. Instead, Theresa May enters the race and, and the rest is history. At what point do you start to work with Theresa May in terms of her bid to be leader? Uh, about two hours after David resigned. And do you get the call or do you make the call? I get the call. <laughs> you know when, uh, I don't know if you've watched The West Wing, I assume you probably of have. Of course. So you know the episode where Sam is in this very boring corporate meeting talking about, about shipbuilding M&A or something similar and Josh basically knocks on the glass window and says it's time. I've always wanted to be in that position. And then, and then I was like, oh my God, this is my West Wing moment. <laughs> and at the time, were you confident she had a good chance of winning? Because I, I think was, lots of people... I was convinced she was going to yeah. win. But here's the thing. The day that she offered me the job, I was at Blenheim Palace with my mother doing the whole, you know, antiquing, hanging out on country estates thing. And we got in the car after I'd taken the call from Teresa and I said to my mother, she'll be Prime Minister one day. And my mum laughed in my face and said, that is just the most ridiculous thing in a competitive field that you've ever said. And I said, I guarantee you she will be Prime Minister one day. And she was. Because I remember from that campaign, ultimately lots of people saying it's Boris Johnson's and then 
Theresa May's just campaign is by far the most organised. It obviously doesn't crumple, doesn't have mm. the go factor, <laughs> which, which Boris Johnson's had. And then you get to the point where actually it's shortened because of the Andrea Leadsom mother interview. Did that mean that some of the plans you were making for government had to be sped up or things or... You know, the fact that it suddenly wasn't the time frame you had expected, did that change things? We were very prepared. Yeah. I mean, we pretty much had everything in place before, if I'm honest, David resigned. So we knew exactly what we were doing. And one of the reasons I thought she would win, despite it looking like it was because Boris dropped out, I knew that she could bridge the gap between both sides of the party, the Remain and the Brexit. And at that time, that was very, very critical. And people knew that she was reliable. She'd done five years fairly untarnished at the Home Office. And ultimately, that shows a credibility that no one else could show. So although everyone just assumed that Boris would get it, and I didn't work on that assumption. Yeah. So Theresa May is crowned, crowned's the wrong word, but Theresa May becomes Prime Minister. And you become the first ever female Chief of Staff. Um, Joint Chief of Staff. Joint Chief, yep. We'll get Nick Timothy can have a bit of space, but he's spoken enough. So, so you've become the first female co-chief of staff alongside Nick Timothy, who's your home office colleague. What's it like your first day in number ten? Just talk us through it. Um, I remember walking through the corridor between the cabinet office and number ten. I don't know if you've ever walked through that corridor. It's a very nice corridor. It's got open, exposed bricks. And I was walking towards number 10, and a number of my friends who worked for David Cameron were walking towards the cabinet office because they were leaving. And I remember thinking, I don't like this feeling. I don't like watching my friends leave. I knew why they were leaving, because they were all exhausted after the Remain campaign. But I do remember feeling that this was not likely to be a happy time. And indeed, it was not. That's really interesting. Was that, was that down to a specific reason, which was a feeling? Because obviously you had the tricky task, so that's an understatement of Brexit. Was it that? Was it just, was it just a sense? I mean, the, the sense of shock that reverberated around that building for a very long time was palpable. And it never quite left in the time that I was there. People just couldn't believe what had happened. And that was before we got into the negotiations and and how we actually even start the the negotiation. And again, I think that in certain meetings, there was just a general sense that continued of of, disbelief that we were even having these conversations. So that Brexit had happened, that David Cameron had got. It was a combination of... I mean, it was just that Brexit had happened yeah. and, and it did feel yeah. like the surface of the sun in there. You know, it, something big had happened. And for me anyway, I, I didn't find, although I'd always wanted to have that job, I didn't find, or at least I had to work harder to try and scope it in a way that I would at least get something out of it. Because that's one of the things about moving to Downing Street, whereas you have some people who in departments do very well, but then... They moved to Downing Street and I mean this of course lots of different roles but it's just such a different way of working. Very different way of working but that's okay. Yeah. Um, you know it's not as operational yeah. as a, a department like the home office is but I was okay with that because I was fairly interested in the NSC and, and that agenda and that's pretty operational. And then actually just trying to keep 
I don't know, a sense of calm in the country by announcing things or doing things that, that allayed people's fears of, well, what's next? And that's what we were trying to do. I think we were fairly successful at doing that in, you know, before the election of 2017. <laughs> that would forever be etched all over my body. <laughs> well, I was going to say, initially, the polls were recording, you know, huge support. There was yeah. what some described as May mania. And I think you go to that local election result, yeah. which was not that long before the general election, yes. and the Tories were, you know, actually in a, a very positive place. So it felt as though in the initial days and weeks, it was going to plan. Did it feel like that on the inside? Yeah. Yeah. I felt like it was going to plan until we got into the 2017 election. So on that, Theresa May calls the election. It's after there have been strong suggestions she would not do that. Did you did you support the decision to call an early election? Or? Yeah, and I, and I still think it was the right. Th- I think it was the only thing that we had to do because the majority was so slim. And if you look now back with hindsight, how difficult it has been since then, there there was no way that we couldn't try it out and have an election. And 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 based on as you said, Katie, the polls indicated that we would win fairly well. What, of course, you can't bake into your thinking is whether or not the campaign you ultimately run has the right momentum. And I don't think the 2017 election campaign ever really had the right momentum for a a number of reasons, some in our gift and a lot outside our control. But with election campaigns, they're almost like the voodoo that you know so well. (laughs) You can get luck, and you can also get bad luck, and it doesn't matter if you've got your messages right or this and that right or wrong. Sometimes it's just a quite unquantifiable momentum or or indeed otherwise. There's always a bit of luck in politics too. Yeah, and <laughs> um, life in general. What do you think went wrong that was in the control, I suppose, of Theresa May, those around her? Well, I, I mean, I didn't get a sense that she was really enjoying it. Yeah. And I think that ultimately journalists pick up on that in a campaign. I think, and I think it's documented that I wasn't a supporter of the social health care policy. It was a very long campaign. I mean, it took me weeks to catch up on sleep. I mean, it really it was a tough campaign. What was it about the social care policy specifically that you just... Well, I, I worked with Jeremy Haywood on it in government. We were actually number 10. And I knew that it had been tested properly. It had only been tested inside the confines of the civil service. My view was to really get under the uh, the skin of, of what it was, is that it should go out to see like the King's Fund or some go out somewhere and be tried and tested and then come back into government. Yeah. I, of course, understand that we need to do something about so- social health care, but I didn't feel like this policy, which was a complex policy, if something's complex to understand or, or to communicate, then it means that it hasn't been tried and tested enough. And I didn't feel it had been. Yeah, we see that a lot. <laughs> yeah. the, the more recent governments. I suppose I wonder just on election night, was there a point when you thought perhaps the Tories would lose that election? Yeah. Was there a point before it? Or if not, I wondered... There was a moment after the Manchester arena bombing where we were uh, travelling by plane up to uh, Manchester and the window, cockpit window, shattered. And we had to drop a couple of 
I'm, I'm terrible with metrics, I'm afraid, but we had to um, drop from the sky, <laughs> but not to the ground. <laughs> so I'm somewhere happy in between. Right. And I hadn't really been feeling particularly great about the general direction of the campaign anyway, but there was something about that moment that, that I, I felt was a bit of an omen and that I felt, like I said, you know, some bad things happen during campaigns and, and it's hard you know, to campaign for politics when people have lost their life. I mean, you know, that's a really ugly thing had happened. You're not going out and staying strong and stable too much after that. Yeah. And so that slows everything down, and it, and it has to. It absolutely has to. But overall, I, I just felt things were not going to plan. And when the exit poll came through... Because I remember coming through just doing the live blog from next door, mm. and it was a slightly, like, spit your tea out of your mug <laughs> moment, what was your reaction? I, I suppose you maybe you hear a bit in advance if you're work. Well, one of the best things I did that day stroke evening was I got my sister to come into CCHQ and I, I think it must have been around maybe 10 to 5 to 10, but as you can imagine, my memory's a bit blurry. And Andy Marr called me and told me what the exit poll was and I felt like basically I'd been kicked in the stomach and I was aware that I was there in in body but I wasn't really there at all in my mind and I was just so grateful for my sister being there because you know she kind of directed me almost and then of course I had to tell Nick and then I had a call from Teresa asking me to go down to the constituency which I did but I don't think I was there very long. She had her count, and then I was in another car coming back up to CCHQ. And my sister had stayed on in the hotel room I was staying in, thank goodness. And then I got there about five o'clock in the morning, and she'd already packed up all my clothes and poured me into a taxi. And the Good rest. sister. Yeah, she, she's a wonderful <laughs> sister. And I, I felt bad for my sister, and particularly for my brother during that period, because my brother was a BBC journalist in Westminster, and I can't imagine how it would have felt for him going into work the next day. I felt quite guilty about that. So all in all, it was what we probably would describe as a low point in one's career. Do you think the three months in the PR firm were still worse? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? Probably. <laughs> My sister wasn't there. <laughs> in the days that followed, of course, you know, MPs are losing their mind. There's obviously a lot of uncertainty a deal is being forged with the DUP through Gavin Williamson and lots of MPs start calling, you know, saying, oh, we can't get Theresa May, so we're going to call for the head of her two powerful aides. Yeah. Nick. So did you feel like you had no choice but to resign? Yeah, I mean, I was forced to resign. Did you? Did you not- I, didn't, I didn't personally think that I should be resigning because I didn't really feel like I'd necessarily done anything massively wrong. Maybe with hindsight, I don't know, maybe I did. Someone else can be the judge of that. It's difficult for me to do it for myself. But just, you know, straightforwardly, you know, she called me and said, you have to resign. So I resigned. It must be tricky in politics when you've obviously dedicated so much... It's obviously your career mm. too, in the sense, as we said, you're the first ever female co-chief of staff, as well mm. as football reporter. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's, so it's a very impressive career in its own right, but obviously you're dedicating years of your life to a politician's career. And this is a, sto- <coughs> this is a story lots of other people feel too, do you know what I mean? It must be strange in a way when obviously 
the politician keeps going, but you're almost potentially collateral. Yeah. Is that, is that something you felt at all, or is it not really? I, seen I, it? Felt, I felt that acutely. Yeah. I mean, of course, she had to keep going, and I understand the rules of politics and life, and I understood that I had to be collateral damage, and she did the right thing sacking us. I mean, Nick, Nick was already resigning anyway. And, you know, as much as I understood all the reasons for the weeks and months that followed, I felt like there was a lack of protection around me and what was written about me. And a lot of what was written about me wasn't entirely accurate. And I found that quite hard, even though as a former journalist, I know how it works and I know how politics works. And now, you know, of course, I accept it. It's not not a thing anymore. But at the time, it was just really horrible, actually. No, I was going to ask you that because it just felt a bit like it became like a feeding frenzy. To, it, to felt, it felt like that. Yeah. And I didn't bother complaining about it because I knew... Well, firstly, I didn't know who to complain to. Um, and secondly, I knew that it was a frenzy, so it was unlikely that anything I said would stop the frenzy. The one thing I would say, though, is, and I still believe this, that for a fairly young woman, <laughs> not, not that young, who lives by herself, to be allowed to be thrown to the wolves like that was potentially not very good. Luckily, I'm a strong person, but if I'd been a lesser person, I may have thrown myself in the Thames. And then after about three or four weeks, you know, someone tried to break into my flat and it turned out that it was probably a political thing. He laughed. When I screamed, he laughed. So these were all the byproducts of having your profile raised in that kind of way. And I think too often in politics, people forget that actually we are all human beings and that sometimes you can take the collateral because you know that that's the game. But I don't think that there's any harm in having some form of safety net for those people who are taking that collateral. And did you have any support kind of after uh, reach out, you know, protection? My mother, my brother, my sister. Because it felt as though it was a period where Nick Timothy was in lots of places, obviously writing columns, and you almost kind of went to ground. I felt that I wanted to understand what had just happened, and I didn't feel that I had all the facts to hand because it all happened in such a high-octane way that I just needed time to really analyse everything that had taken place and my own place in it. And also, I just, I, I, I didn't really feel that I had anything of any consequence to say at that point. And also, I'm very discreet and loyal, and if I had said anything at that point, I'd have only fed the frenzy, and that wouldn't have been helpful to anyone. I mean, Nick was different because he was given a column in the Daily Telegraph, so that allowed him to make the next step into journalism, and he'd always wanted to eventually do that. But I didn't want to do that, and I made the calculation that I needed to let the frenzy pass and then rebuild my life. And I wasn't likely to be able to do that during a frenzy. Now, I want to talk about the things you're doing now. The final thing I just wanted on that was 
in that time and re- reflecting, is there anything, you know, when you've had that time away, I think, were you in America for a while? I went to stay with my poor friend, uh, Laura in New York, who has, <laughs> I mean, basically three months of saying, Laura, how do I turn a computer on? Or, <laughs> Laura, could you just fix this IT problem? Because, you know, until then, I'd not really, I mean, we had PSEs and things in government, and then you're back to doing it for yourself. And she was a good friend for uh, putting up with me and my IT limitations. Is there anything with hindsight, having had that time to reflect, you would have done differently from the time? In truth, it's a, it was a very difficult period for me, Casey, because my partner had been diagnosed with cancer. And so for me, a lot of it is a bit of a blur. Yeah. Because I was keeping it all together. And would I do anything differently? Probably. But I couldn't point to one thing. Yeah. But evidently, I'm not in that job anymore, so something went wrong. <laughs> you know, and I, and I take my responsibility for whatever went wrong as much as I'm sure Nick and Teresa would. I mean, no one seems to stay in that job very long these days. <laughs> no. <laughs> so now, outside of government, you've spoken a bit about uh, the consultants you're doing now. You also, for a time, back at the CSJ. Yeah. So in terms of your day-to-day now what is your focus uh, you know what you t- spoke a bit about how in the home office you know it's like getting up and high stakes and it's what gets you going is, is that what you have now too I do I've, I've got myself and and it has taken a long time I mean you know 2017 was five years ago I'm glad I took my time actually I think it's good to go slow when you're rebuilding because you want to get the next phase of your life absolutely right and I feel like I've got there and a bit like I was saying in relation to general election campaigns, having that momentum and things just start working and you can start seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and you know, and everyone has this, you have your moments when you, in life where you go through your downturn and you just have to get through it. But then you start realising that you're going through the next phase again, which is the good times before you ultimately get to the bad times again let's face it but we're, we're in a cycle <laughs> but, um, but you, you know I, I've got I've got a sense that when I get out of bed in the morning I'm doing interesting things I'm speaking to interesting people the clients I have are diverse and just very very interesting interesting regions and so forth and now I'm, I'm about to well not about to I'm already starting to organise an international security conference which we'll have here in the UK nothing to do with the UK government I'm organising this by myself and that will be next October on the 9th and the 10th I can't say yet where it will be but it's a pretty groovy venue and that will keep me occupied (laughs) for a while so I've made a life for myself which I'm very very comfortable in You once ran for a seat I think. I was on the list, but on the I list. didn't ever go for any seats. But you're not tempted now. Oh, goodness. goodness. <laughs> no. From everything you're saying, I, I would presume it was a no, but just, just wanted to... I, I do not cherish the job of MP. <laughs> I just have two final questions. The first was just one, which is reflecting on politics when you obviously had the frontline role to politics now, the state of the Tory party, all the division. Do you think we have become more divided? I don't think it's just, or rather, I don't think division applies just to the Tory party or indeed Westminster. I think the division is the byproduct of a very changing world 
and a world that's changing in a way that is quite concerning. And because things are starting to get quite serious, we all know that the risks involved and the threats we're facing are are fairly big and probably of the kind that we've never thought we would see in our generation. And ultimately, I think that is making people quite anxious. And in terms of what we do about it, or what those people who work in politics do about it, I think that they have to see the bigger picture. We can't have a population living in fear. They need to feel like the people who are paid to lead have to lead. And those who lead have to understand that that threat isn't just a foreign policy or a security threat anymore. It's a threat that people actually feel in their own homes. And I'm not talking about mortgages and all yeah. that. I'm talking just people waking up in the morning, listening to the news, watching the news. They, they, they know things are changing. They worry about their children, their grandchildren, what kind of world that they will live in. And we, or those in power, need to steward the country through that. Now, the final question is one I ask everyone on this podcast, which is, what is the worst advice you've ever been given? And you could have taken it, or you could have just completely ignored it. I have a feeling you may have ignored it. That feeling would be right. (laughs) Well, actually, there's two pieces of advice that I didn't think in the end happened to be very good. One I did take and regretted it, and then the other one I didn't take. Oh, fab, let's have both. Okay, so the one I didn't take... In Scotland, and I don't know if you had this when you were at school in Scotland, we had a thing called career advisors. My mother is a career advisor. Oh, no. No, you might be about... No, don't worry. She's oh, retired no. now. Okay. She was a brief career advisor in Scottish schools, so this is, this is particularly good now. Okay. Well, my career advisor was a man who was quite rotund and uh, shiny, uh, shall we say. And I went to him and I said, I want to be a journalist. And he said, I wouldn't do that. He said, you don't know anyone in journalism. It's a very nepotistic industry. You'll never get a job. And I was absolutely incandescent. So I sat down and I wrote a letter to the headmaster. And I said, I just don't think that it's very good for career advisors to tell people they can't do something. We should be telling people they can do something. And then became a journalist. So see ya Um, and then the less fortunate piece of advice which I actually did (laughs) did take up was on the Friday morning I found out that I got my job at the Scotsman and I was obviously super excited about this because I'd always wanted to work on the Scotsman and especially that old building which is now a, a hotel it was a real romantic dream I had and so rather excitedly, I hit a Glasgow nightclub with a few friends and we ordered some Sambuca. And my friend said to me, you need to light your Sambuca, which I did, but then burnt my lips. So started the first day, the job that I'd been pining for for many years with, shall we say, a slightly swollen lip. Some people would pay for that these days. Um, do you know, actually, maybe I'll do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Better than an injection. And um, with that, thank you for joining us, Stephen. Pleasure. Thank you very much, Katie. Thank you.